Hey, you're listening to Cut for Time, a podcast from Faith Church located on the north side of Indianapolis. My name is Claire Kingsley. Each week, I'll sit down with one of our preaching pastors to discuss their Sunday sermon. Cut for Time is a look behind the scenes of sermon preparation, and they'll share with us a few things that we didn't hear from the sermon on Sunday. Thanks for listening. Hey, Claire. Good afternoon, morning, evening, middle of the night, whenever you know people are listening to this. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I just hope it's good. I mean, if you're listening to this, obviously it's a good time. Yeah. Right. Whether you're washing dishes or mowing the lawn, going for a run, it's good. Yeah, it is good. My soccer coach, when even when it was raining, he'd say it's a good day to play soccer because, like, it's just like awesome that you get to play, right? So yeah. it's a good day. It's like that bumper sticker day. says a bad day fishing is better than a good day working. It's true. Yeah, even if you catch nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Joey, give us a recap from your sermon on Sunday, which was the 12th. Yeah. So we're finishing up Acts chapter one. And the the kind of the main question we were trying to answer is like, why is this passage here? Because it's not really about, you know, Judas's gruesome death. It's about why Peter felt it was necessary that there be 12 apostles again. You know, there's 12. Jesus appointed 12. Then they're down to 11 because Judas apostatized. And, you know, he left, he betrayed Jesus. And Peter says, we got to get back up to 12. And what we were exploring was why. And and the answer is that uh, part of what Jesus was doing in his ministry was, uh, I said, he's reliving or recapitulating the history of Israel in himself, kind of forming a new Israel around himself. And at the beginning of Israel, there were 12 brothers, 12 tribes. This new Israel needs 12 men, 12 tribes, metaphorically speaking, to reform Israel around Jesus so that it can be redeemed and so that through Israel, blessing can come to the nations, as was promised to Abraham, you know, way back in Genesis 17, 16, 14, 12, wherever that is, you know, those those teen chapters of, of Genesis. And, and so part of, you know, why that's important here in Luke's theological history of the early church, as he's writing about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach in the church through the Holy Spirit, um, is that if authoritative witness of Jesus's resurrection, the Messiah's resurrection uh, is going to be communicated to Israel, it needs to come through these authoritative witnesses who saw it happen. That's the 12 apostles now that Matthias has been included in it. And that has huge implications for us and how we understand the church, right? This is this movement of Jesus is based on real things that happen in history uh, it's the 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 proof of it is based on eyewitnesses who saw it, not just people who like an idea, but people who saw Jesus come back from the dead. And it also means mm-hmm. that, you know, as they are called to call people, call Israel back to God, um, they're sending others to witness to Jews all across the world and then to Gentiles and everyone, you know, they're sent and they're sending others and sending us is kind of what I was arguing. If you want to talk about us being in the, you know, uh, like apostles, it's that we also are sent with a message, authoritatively sent to represent a message. So that was, uh, yeah, there you go. That's the summary of what we covered last Sunday. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks, Joey. All right, so you said that um, you could give us some textual detail that you weren't able yes. to cover um, and break down the text a little bit more for us. So, hey, if someone is listening at home and they, you know, you're not driving or whatever, and you could pull out your sermon journal or your mm-hmm. Bible. You're probably going to want it um, as we walk through this text. It could be really helpful. Um, otherwise, uh, we'll 
help you. We'll read some verses in between it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Context also. Um, but I'm a, I've got mine out. So I'm going to take some notes as we go, Joey. Yeah. So I thought this would be fun because uh, I, I spent more time in this sermon putting the text in its whole biblical canonical context and not so much kind of going through and explicating various details in the text and explaining this word and that thing and all that. And there were a lot of verses. I mean, it was 12 to 26. So that's what, 15 verses and lots happening in there. So that'd be fun to just walk through them a little, a little bit. So if you start in verse 12, you know, it says they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. So the Mount of Olives and Luke comments, it's a Sabbath day's journey away. That doesn't mean it happened on the Sabbath. That's just a standard unit of measurement. You know, that's how far you're allowed to travel on the Sabbath, which was depending on who you read anywhere from two thirds of a mile to about four thirds of a mile, one and one thirds mile. Um, so uh, when they had entered into Jerusalem, then they went up to the upper room, um, which may have been the same room as the uh, Last Supper, may not have been. It's a different word that Luke uses in Greek. And interestingly, in chapter two and verse one, when it says they're all together in one place, it doesn't say they're back in that room, but they may have been. You know, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. It, that's not okay. a detail Luke's interested in. Um, but it says when they had entered and went up the upper room where they were staying, and then he lists the apostles. And it's fun. Every time the apostles are listed, the, the list is just a little bit different. Um but they're always in like groups with the same mm-hmm. person leading each group. Normally they're in four groups of three here. They're in a group of four and then groups of two and then a group of three, um, something like that. So it's like Peter, James, and John are always together. Andrew, Philip, Thomas, uh, Bartholomew and Matthew then are, are matched up. And then James, uh, Simon, the zealot and another Judas, Judas, the son of James. This is probably the same guy as Thaddeus in the other lists. Um, so there's the list, but it's pretty obvious that like Judas Iscariot is not listed here, right? It's only 11. And then there's the, that, uh, verse 14, all these with one accord and that with one accord, I talked about it, uh, at the end of the sermon, when we were commissioning our shepherd team, that's a word that only Luke uses except once in Romans that Paul uses it. And it's this all with one accord. They are like zealously united is the sense of this word of, as they're waiting, anticipating the coming the coming of the Spirit, um, it's like they are all in a room, like eagerly anticipating this thing happening. It's you could think of it sort of like people lined up out of outside of a um, you know outside of a Walmart on Black Friday or outside of a movie theater, just waiting for the the midnight showing of this new film or something like that. They are just all unified in what they're doing. And what's interesting about the being in one accord, he uses the word both of the disciples who are in one accord around what Jesus is doing and the opposition who are all in one accord against what the church is doing. So we'll see the, the word show up all throughout Acts, which is really cool. Um, verse 15, uh, oh, actually, so still in verse 14, uh, they were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. Um, some say this is the wives of the apostles, but it seems to be a larger group of women than that. And then Mary, Jesus's mother, very last time Mary is mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. She doesn't show up anywhere else after this. Um, and Jesus's brothers, his um, physical brothers. Mm-hmm. Then verse 15, there's some really interesting stuff in here, right? It, so in those days, this is in the 10 days between Jesus's ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Peter stood up among the brothers and their brothers is the word Adelphoi, which in Greek can refer to um, biological brothers. So I have four brothers for Adelphoi. 
it can refer to a group of men. So, you know, us elders together are brothers, or it can refer to a mixed group of men and women. Um, so you could say to the whole church, hey, brothers, hey, Adelphoi. So it's actually probably better uh, to translate the word at the beginning of 15, or the word in 15 as brothers and sisters, because the company of them all was about 120. Luke inserts a little parenthetical comment, which he actually doesn't do all that often, um, giving us little details sort of in parentheses, but he does it twice in this story, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Peter stood up among the whole group and then said, and at the beginning of verse 16, this one's interesting too, because there the Greek te- uh, technically says men brothers, uh, men brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. So in that he's probably talking just to the other 10 apostles in the room with him. Um, and then of course the, you know, so that's 11, the other 109 are kind of watching on, listening on. Um, the NIV sort of, I think does it incorrectly. They translate the first one as brothers and the second one as brothers and sisters instead of the first as brothers and sisters and the second as brothers. Um, but anyway, it's it's something people debate. So in verse 16, then he says, the, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit, so they're waiting for the coming of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And he qu- goes on to quote a couple of Psalms. So he sees the Psalms as being written by the Holy Spirit through David, through the mouth of David. So this is kind of uh, gives us a hint into how early Christians or this this period of time, how Jews would see the inspiration of the Spirit uh, in Scripture, uh, which is pretty fascinating. And uh, I, I talked about it a little bit differently in the two different sermons, so I don't remember what I said when, but this idea that Scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas we tend to use the word fulfilled to mean like, I'm going to make a prediction and then it's going to come true. And you'll be able to tell from the specific details of my prediction, exactly how that came true. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, I could have predicted that the the nuggets were going to beat the heat last night in game five and, you know, win the, the NBA championship. Right. Um, and then it would have proven true or untrue. That's not necessarily the way that the word fulfilled is used um, by the way G- uh, Jewish people would think about scripture being fulfilled. Uh, scripture, So scripture can be fulfilled, events can be fulfilled, time can be fulfilled. And the word fulfilled is just a word for filled up, um, like you would fill up a glass with water. So the scriptures can be filled up. The word, I, I think I use it in one of the sermons, maybe I use it in both, I can't remember, is that it, it's more like it rhymes. Like, oh, what is happening here rhymes with what I'm seeing happening there. Or it's not so much a prediction as a, um, oh, how did I put it? Not a prediction, but a uh, um, a pattern kind of uh, that you can see the pattern of scripture. It's sort of like that old saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. That's the kind of sense mm. that we get out of scripture here. And then in verse 17, um, about Judas, right? So in verse 16, he became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, like betrayed him. Verse 17, Judas was numbered among us and allotted his share. And there's some interesting things going on there with the number, the word number allotment. So his lot needs to go to someone else. Uh, so there's, there's connections to the next page there, but verses 18 and 19 are another parenthetical comment that Luke throws in. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, so the, the payment that he, the 40 pieces of silver he was given. And then falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. 
and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their own language. And that phrase in their own language is, is significant for Luke, because in the very next chapter, people are going to hear the apostles talking about Jesus in their own language. So there's a sense in which Judas is a the first witness to Jesus, but he's a negative witness. He's a bad witness. Um, we know that, you know, verses 18 and 19 aren't part of what Peter originally said because Peter wouldn't have needed to tell everybody in the room that, hey, you know, their language is Aramaic and in Aramaic, a kaldama means field of blood. That's that's Luke's comment for a Greek uh, speaker reading this, this letter um, some other place in time. Um, but verses 18 and 19, this story of how Judas died doesn't seem to line up very well with Matthew's version of how Jud Judas died. So in Matthew's version, Judas repents. He goes back to the chief priests. He tells them, I wish I'd never done this. Um, take your money back. And they're like, no, that's blood money. We can't take it. That would make us unholy. It's like, dude, you guys are the one who gave him the blood money. But anyway, he throws it at their feet. And then he goes mm -hmm. out and hangs himself. And with, his, with that money, they buy the mm -hmm. potter's field, which would be a field with lots of holes dug in it. And so it wouldn't, wouldn't be good for grazing any sort of livestock. You know, they'd always have broken limbs, um, can't plant anything there. So they bought this potter's field and then they basically use it for burying uh, foreigners who die in Jerusalem because it becomes a mass grave, you know, a common grave, essentially. Here it says Judas acquired the field um, and then he fell in it and suffered some sort of um, injury, you know, to his midsection and all those bowels gushed out. It's very gruesome. So how do those two stories go together? Mm -hmm. You know, does Luke have access to one story and Matthew has access to another? The, the consistencies, the continuities between the two are that Judas died in a way that shows he's being judged by God. And the field became known as field of blood in both stories. And there's different ways of thinking about it. In the um, Matthew version, saying Judas went out and hanged himself Maybe literally, specifically, he hung himself. It may be that hanged himself is, euphemis is a euphemism for took his own life, um, but not that uh, it was done by hanging. But like hanging stands in for any way you can take your own life, fall on your sword, jump off of a building. Because um, the, the thought is here in Luke, he probably jumped off of a building into the field and suffered traumatic uh, injuries that led to his death. So um, also, you know, who bought the field? Did Judas buy the field? Did the priest buy the field? Well, the priest may have bought the field in Judas's name because it was Judas's money and they didn't want to put their own name on it. So Judas's field, field of blood, it's where he died. Like that's the continuity. That's the the consistency among the stories. So anyway, that's 18 and 19. Now we're out of Luke's parenthetical comment and back into the text of what, uh, back into Peter's speech. So Peter's saying in verse 17, Judas was numbered among us and allotted his share in the ministry because it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Um, now the way Peter is quoting, he's quoting, this is Psalm 69, and the next one is Psalm 109. Um, the way he's quoting these is he's quoting the Greek translations of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, we call it the Septuagint, um, or sometimes you may see it referred to as the LXX, which is Roman numerals for 70. Uh, so the LXX or the Septuagint, seven, supposedly 70 scholars in 70 days translated the whole thing. 
<clears throat> but this is the Greek Bible that uh, Jesus had, that Jews had, and so that Paul had. And so a lot of the comments or a lot of the, sorry, the quotes of the Old Testament are quoted in Greek uh, instead of Hebrew. And just like any translation, you know, slight shifts of emphasis or change can happen when you're trying to go from one language and the way people think in that language to another language and the way people think in that language. So like I'm quoting English all the time and sometimes referring back to the Greek and saying things like, hey, there isn't one real good English word that captures the Greek word here. And so it takes more words or you can only get half the meaning out of English. So something similar is coming along here. Uh, but also um, Peter is as he's quoting these Psalms, he's changing them just slightly and changing things like, instead of it saying, um, let another take their office, he trans he quotes it as let another take his office. So instead of the third person, you know, or instead of the, the plural, third person plural, he makes it the third person singular um, saying, and, you know, I'm seeing this apply directly to Judas. And so as he quotes them, he kind of changes pronouns around a little bit from that, you know, there to his and things like that to um, bring it to more of a point. Um, so it's just some, you know, fascinating details about what happens when Peter and others quote from the Old Testament. So um, then we, we get into verses 21, 22, um, and this I, I did pretty well cover Um about the qualifications, how you needed to be a witness to his resurrection. I can't remember if I said in both services or just one of them that the word, the Greek word for witness is martyr, martyria. And it's where we get okay. the word martyr eventually. So eventually this idea of being a martyr, originally this idea of being a martyr for Jesus meant to be a, uh, it was a court word for you will give testimony in a court of law that what you, you know, and what you're saying is the truth. And because of what happens to those who are witnesses for Jesus, because eventually so many lose their lives for it, the word also gained the meaning of one who is willing to, to go to the point of death for what they believe to be true. Um, so we're going to see in just a couple of chapters in chapter six, the first witness martyr you know, the first time that a witness becomes a martyr in Stephen. So okay. verse 23, they put forward two, two guys among, uh, you know, the 120 that were gathered together who qualify. We don't know that these were the only two that qualify or the best two that qualify. Um, I was talking to someone else who said, uh, you know, they were in a church context where because of this verse, they believed every office going, any office required two, you had to put up two names. Uh, for people to vote between. And this guy was saying, well, that only makes sense if you cast lots for it afterwards, not if you vote. Um, this is, uh, and I, I said this a little bit in the sermon, this is the only time that we see this kind of thing happen in Acts. And that's, that's instructive for us. Um, one of the commentaries I was reading said, uh, how do you tell the difference between what is descriptive of what happened versus what's prescriptive of what all churches should do throughout time, right? Because so much right. of this is culturally bound and all that. Another way of putting it is, hey, what's normal and what's normative creates the norm for other churches. And uh, one guy I read on it says, hey, look for either something that's commanded, something that is done and then is specifically uh, um, applauded, 
or otherwise indicated as like, yeah, that was the right thing. That was a good thing to do or look for something that's repeated. So if you see a repeated pattern in different cultural locations, then it's a pretty good hint that that's something that should continue. But if you only see it once, then don't take the one instance as like, well, that's normative or that's prescriptive for everything. So it's like here, casting lots isn't prescriptive for something we should do throughout time. Even if we do other versions of it, like, um, hey, we're just going to announce it. And like, if the money comes in, that means that's what God wants us to do. Right. Or I'm just going to, uh, I'm just going to apply for that job. And if I get it, that means that's what God wants. Right. Or, yeah. Hey, yeah. I'm just gonna, I'm going to apply for that school. And if I get in, that's what God wants me to do. Right. Um, yeah. that's the way we cast lots. <laughs> we do it a little differently instead of rolling dice or shaking pebbles in a jar. We're just like, Hey, if it doesn't seem like it should happen, but it does, it must be God. It's like, well, not necessarily. Um, right. but anyway, they, so we never see casting lots again. We never see two people put forward for a position again, uh, any of that, but these two guys, it's interesting. Joseph is also called, called Barsabbas, which means son of the Sabbath or son of my old age. Um, so it was either an old guy who had a son finally, or a kid who was born on the Sabbath. And he also has a Roman name justice, uh, which indicates that he, he may have been, um, Jewish, but have grown up in a different part of like, not in Israel. He may have grown up somewhere else or kind of like Paul, right? Um, the apostle Paul later, um, his Jewish name is Saul when he's with his friends and family and his Roman name is Paul when he's interacting with, uh, the broader Roman world. So has both of those names. Yeah. And then this guy, Matthias, um, and then they pray, right. And they call, this is interesting. They call God, they call Lord. They say you Lord. And does that mean God, the father, or does that mean Jesus? Um, they, we just, you know, verse 21 just referred to Jesus as Lord. So it's probably still there. Plus it's the whole idea of, Hey, Jesus, you appointed the 12 of us. Originally one went away to his own place, kind of euphemistic for judgment. Now you Lord need to appoint another person, but that phrase, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, uh, God, the knower of hearts, um, that phrase became kind of like a favorite name for God in the early centuries of the church. Um, God, you are the one who knows all hearts. Uh, we even see it show up in some of our prayers now, like God before whom no secrets are hidden, who knows the hearts of all men, all mankind. Yeah. Um, so you, God is the knower of hearts actually doesn't show up really before Luke uses it here in this prayer. So then, uh, you know, show us which one of these two you've chosen to the to take place. And we talked about this apostolic ministry and here, this ministry, this place, this allotment, this share in the ministry from which Judas turned aside uh, to go, go to his own direction. And then they cast lots, the lot falls on Matthias, and then he is numbered with the 11. He is given um, that, that word numbered um, echoes back to verse 17, for he was numbered yeah. among us. Um, it's an, you know, an echo of that earlier. So whatever, uh, um, whatever happened with Judas originally and being part of the group now, uh, now that Matthias now takes that role. So, mm -hmm. and now the 11 become 12 and you can see why I had to cut all that out. Cause that was like 15 minutes of just walking through the text. I know. Take a breath. Details. <laughs> it's Ooh. good though. So I've got some questions for you, if that's all right. Yes, let's do it. If people are still willing to uh, stick with us. All right. You mentioned today's version of casting lots. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but some people would consider that great faith, right? Like, man, that person's got such strong faith in the Lord to provide in the job or in the house mm-hmm. or in mm-hmm. all these other ways that you said. So what's the balance between great faith, but also foolish faith? just saying, yeah, right. yeah. I mean, like, how do we, yeah, how do we balance that? Yeah. And, and that's a really good question. So uh, imagine, uh, imagine your parent, um, and you've got a a kid who is like climbing all over, you know, a jungle gym or something like that. And so we'll imagine this is Hazel, right? And Hazel's up on top of the the jungle gym, and uh, you know, you're talking and kind of you're paying attention, right? Um, this is going to be a bad analogy for God, but it might work a little bit. Um, so stick with me. And you hear Hazel going, you know daddy catch me and you look over and she's climbed over the railing and she's about to jump and you're like uh okay so what's a good dad gonna do he's gonna catch her right yeah she exhibited great faith in her father's ability to keep her from harm but that doesn't mean that just because god is faithful to keep us from harm doesn't mean we should be jumping off of every cliff saying, I have great faith in you to catch me. Um, so sometimes, you know, we'll do things like, like I mentioned, Hey, I'm just gonna, um, I'm just gonna go for it. And you know what? I don't think it's gonna happen, but if it comes through, then God made that happen and he's caring for us. And this is what he wants me to do. It's like laying out a fleece is, you know, another phrase we might use for it or, um, casting lots, right? Um, Just saying, hey, God, if you show up, you know, um, instead of saying, hey, I am going to pray. I'm going to talk to wise people who know Jesus. I'm going to uh, really think hard about what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, what I maybe call, what I have a sense of being called to and what I don't. And then I'm going to make the best decision I can in those circumstances. And I'm going to trust God that by talking, by praying, consulting scripture, talking to wise people and making the best decision I can, that I am following his will. Sometimes we we would rather, I think, say, hey, you know what? I applied to my stretch school and I got in and it's really hard, but I know God wants me here because otherwise he wouldn't have let me in. While that school is maybe eating us alive and training us to do a job we're going to hate because it's not at all, uh, it doesn't at all fit uh, our sense of call, you know, God's call on our lives or what we're good at. But it's easy for us to, easier for us to say, this is hard, but God called me to it. So I'm going to stick through it. And I know he called me because he made things happen that couldn't otherwise happen. That's easier than saying, hey, I made the best decision I could and it's difficult and I need to have the courage that it takes to continue to do a difficult thing. Does that make sense? In other words, we would rather um, convince ourselves that God worked in circumstances than grow ourselves or be formed to do difficult things, trusting that whether we succeed or fail, it's not the success or failure that matters. It's the pursuing God along the way that matters. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think there's a couple of like really good books on this topic. The the classic thick one is um, 
uh, what's the guy's name? Friesen is his last name. I'm trying to remember his first name. Uh, Gary, Gary Friesen, Decision-Making in the Will of God. Uh, that's a great book. But Kevin DeYoung also has a book called Just Do Something, which is more along the lines of like, hey, talk to wise people, read your Bible, pray, and then make a decision. He says something like, go to college or don't, move in with that roommate or don't, take the job or don't. It doesn't matter. Just do something and pursue God along the way. That's that's what's more important. Um, or another way to put it is it's easier to steer a ship that's moving than one that's not. So get moving and keep seeking God, uh, keep seeking God along the way. But um, I would say resist the temptation to to say that unlikely circumstances are automatically God working in your life or making something happen as a sign to show his will. Take it as a point of data, but exercise wisdom by talking to other wise people, reading scripture, praying, and trying to decide, hey, what's the best thing for me and my family to do in this situation based on who we are, the community we're part of, uh, the things that are valuable that scripture says are valuable, like being embedded in a community, being open and honest with other people, being part of a deep fellowship. Um, one of the ways that like my wife and I talk about it is that um, we we like to say that stability is better or greater than opportunity. Like God doesn't want us to just bounce from place to place in order to, you know, keep going to better jobs or better paychecks. He wants us to be deeply rooted in a community of people who are following him together. And that may mean yep. saying no to a lot of things that the rest of the world would say yes to, because we're saying yes mm -hmm. to something that the rest of the world has no interest in, which is being deeply embedded in a single community through a long period of time, growing in Christ together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know if yeah. I answered okay, the question or just helpful. went roundabout yeah. about it, but there you go. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's good. And even just like that initial analogy that you gave about like, you know, this playground um, idea, like that worked for me. So oh, good. It worked for I others. was like, well, God's yeah. paying more attention to me when I'm on the playground, when I just want my kid to just go play and leave me alone for an hour or five minutes would be nice. God's paying way more attention than that for sure. Um, but yeah. yeah, catch me. It's like, yeah. why are you jumping? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, all right. So Joey, help me out here. We spent okay. a lot of time talking about apostles during the sermon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me the difference between apostles and disciples. Why do yes. we have two different words for these things? Yes. Are these words interchangeable? You know? Great question. So all apostles are disciples. Not all disciples are apostles. Sometimes we refer to the 12 apostles. Sometimes we refer to those 12 as the disciples. Mm -hmm. And we're, it's a little bit of a confusion, but it's just part of the way we tend, you know, we use, we use words. So think of disciples as a big circle and a disciple is anyone who is following Jesus, apprentice to Jesus. They're trying to learn how to live the way, the truth and the life from Jesus, um, that includes all believers throughout time are disciples. A disciple is somebody who is, right, the words related to discipline. It's a word for someone who is specifically trying to learn from their master, their teacher. So disciples is the big bucket. Out of that big bucket, um, with a capital A, apostles, we've got 12 and these are the 12 that Jesus named and called apostles. And these are the 12 whose names were given 
in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke. Now, Matthew, I did a quick search to see how many times the word apostle shows up. Um, Matthew only uses the word once. The name of the 12 apostles are these, and then he never uses it again. Um, Mark uses the word twice. Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And then three chapters later, the apostles returned to Jesus, told him all they'd done and taught. Uh, John uses the word once. When he says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is an apostle greater than the one who sent him. And we translate it there, a messenger, because it's the messenger sense of the word, the one who is sent with a, with a message. So a messenger isn't greater than the one who sent him. Luke mm-hmm. is the one who uses the word apostle most. So in Luke 6, uh, when the day came, he called his disciples, called his disciples, the big group, and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And then he gives a list. Um, Luke 9, when they returned, so Jesus sends them out, you know, sends them out two by two to go into different towns and villages and proclaim the kingdom. On their return, the apostles told them all that he had done. Um, Luke 17, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Uh, Luke 22, the last supper, when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Luke 24, after the resurrection, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles that, hey, Jesus has come back from the dead. So Luke's the one who uses the word apostles the most as a title, like a capital A apostle. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, so whenever we talk about the 12 or the 12 apostles, we're talking about the original 12 if we're still in the gospels before Judas betrayed Jesus, or we're talking about the 11 plus Matthias, the 12th apostle when we're in acts. So mm-hmm. it, we're going to see, um, we're going to see showing up here in, in acts that, you know, acts one, he gives commands to the Holy spirit to the, through the Holy spirit, to the apostles, the lot fell on Matthias. He was numbered among the apostles. Um, Acts chapter two, the crowd says to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do? Um, Acts two, they've devoted themselves to the apostles teaching acts four with great power. The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's exactly what Peter said they were, they needed to do. Um, and so we keep seeing acts four, acts five, acts you know, Peter and the apostles, Acts 6, they set before the apostles and um, all were scattered in Acts 8, all were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria because of the persecution, except the apostles. So that's where we mean capital A, that 12. Yeah. Now we also talk about Paul as an apostle because for a couple of reasons. One, Paul calls himself an apostle. Um, now, when we talk about Paul, we're not talking about Paul as one of the 12, one of the 12 that yeah. is part of the reconstituted, the reformed Israel. We're talking about Paul as an apostle in the sense that Paul is an authoritative witness to the resurrection of Jesus sent by Jesus himself. Remember, Paul has that uh, vision of Jesus um, on yep. the road to Damascus. But others are also called apostles, uh, Barnabas, uh, Junia, um, what Ananias, um, Ananias, I think the good Ananias. Um, and so, um, in that, in that sense, when, when that happens, that's an, the sense of apostle, like lowercase a apostle 
as someone who is sent from one church to another with a mission or with a message or sent from Jesus with a message. So to recap, big circle disciples, small circle, 12 apostles, which are the 11 plus Judas, if we're in the gospels, or it's the 11 plus Matthias, if we're in Acts. And then there's an occasional little spot that is another apostle, meaning either Paul, an apostle born in an untimely, uh, in an untimely way, I think he calls it untimely born, you know, born after the fact, um, or there's apostles in the sense of like, hey, we're sending this authoritative messenger from our church to your church. And so Barnabas is an apostle. He's sent from us to you. So okay. is that okay. cleared up? <laughs> Thank you. Okay. My last question for you. Yeah. So um, you were going through, I think, just like why it needed to be 12. I yeah, think yeah. like why we needed 12 guys. Yeah. Um, and you were talking about the period of judges. Yeah. I yeah, don't understand yeah. how this fit in the context sure. of the whole sermon. Um, you were saying that t- these judges were an official um, to exercise redemptive leadership. Yes. How does that fit in with the 12 apostles. I'm glad you asked the question because if you were in the dark, it means others were in the dark too. And I didn't explain it or connect the dots very well. So, um, so here's what I was trying to argue. Um, Jesus creates the office, if you want to call it that, the office, the role of apostle. When he gathers all of his disciples together, he picks 12 of them. He says, you are my apostles, capital A. You're yes. my authoritative representatives. And then in Luke 22, um, they're at the last supper. They're arguing about who's the greatest and Jesus interrupts them. The apostles are arguing about like, Hey, this kingdom's coming. Which one of us is, you know, who, what's the order, you know, what's the hierarchy. And Jesus says, look, guys, I know being at the table is a greater honor than serving at the table, but I came as a servant. So what do you think you should do? If you want to be like me, you'll be serving at the table, not worried about where you're sitting at the table which is a whole sermon in itself. But right after saying that, he says, but the father gave me a kingdom and I'm giving you guys kingdoms. And so you will sit at my table and you will eat and you will drink with me. And it, and you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So at Luke 22, 30 says, um, mm. you know, he, he's talking about, you know, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, but not... So with you, let the greatest become as the youngest, the leader as the one who serves. And then the thing about it's better to serve at the table than be at the table. And then he says in 22, 28, you, you guys, you 12 are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Judas is about to go betray him. He's already got the plans. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in 2230, um, the sitting on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now it's really easy for us to take that verse and put it way off in the future and think, okay, at some point there's gonna be the, the great judgment at the end of time. And these 12 guys have some special role where they sit on those 12 thrones and Jewish people are judged by them. Anything that happens in the future end, you know, anything that happens in the future end has implications for now, in the same way that everything now has implications into the future end. Uh, what I think the the best way to understand this passage is, you know, a first century Jewish hearer of the idea of judging 
wouldn't think of it in the way we do as purely judicial. When you've gotten a traffic ticket and you want to dispute it, you go before a judge. They would hear the word judge in the context of Israel's history and think back to the period of the judges when every time Israel got itself into a problem, it had walked away from God. God sent a judge, an official, whose call was to call them back to exercise redemptive leadership. So I don't think what Jesus is saying here is to these 12 guys, hey, you know what? Um, in the kingdom of God, when it comes at the very end, you're going to get to exercise judgment and tell people where they were wrong. I think what he's saying is in the kingdom of God, which we're going to start building after my resurrection and ascension, you need to intervene on behalf of Israel and call Israel back to God because they've wandered off. Judges, you know, saying there's 12 judges and 12 or 12 thrones in a kingdom and, and a table and all that, it, we're not talking about the furniture in heaven. Um, this is metaphorical language for how the how nations and kingdoms operate in the world now. So that's that was the connection with the period of the judges. Those 12 disciples would have heard, I think, Jesus saying, You're going to exercise redemptive leadership in the kingdom when Israel is ruling the world on God's behalf, calling Israel back to God. And that's exactly what starts to happen in the book of Acts. In, in chapter one, they need it, they need that 12th apostle. And in chapter two, all the apostles start preaching to, to Jews from all over the world, come to God through his Messiah, Jesus. Okay. All right. So you included it in your sermon because it supports the argument of needing a 12th. Yep. And because it's going to almost set us up for what we're going to see in chapter two. Exactly. What we're going to see in chapter two is the 12 apostles uh, leading Israel back to God, mm -hmm. bringing okay. Israel back from all nations. Yeah. All right. Thank you. And yeah, no I problem. don't know. I Just because I'm lost doesn't mean that other people are lost. Okay. Final question. I've got one final question for you. And I know we're going long. And so if people are staying with us, it's amazing. If they want to drop off here, it's fine. Okay. All right. We have this really long series ahead of us. We've got yes. two and a half years ahead of us, but we have broken up this, this long series into yep. sub series. Can you just explain to people, we're actually about to enter into the next portion of the yeah. sub series. So like, yes, we've had three sermons in our initial introduction. We're moving on. And um, how will people know that we're moving on? What's the point? How did we get these sub series to begin with? Mm. And then like, I don't know, just like, how does it all come together? Or what are we mm -hmm. taking with us from one to the next, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Luke gives us a lot of clues in the text, kind of where he breaks things into big sections. So we're following those clues. You know, he, he'll he give summary statements, thus the kingdom of God expands. You know, the kingdom of God word shows up a couple of times. Um, and each time it does, it's this real significant pivotal point and where it, it like opens up into new vistas, new chapters. So we, we're following the structure of Acts in the way we've broken it up. And so chapter one is really this prologue setup introduction. So that's why it's just the acts of the spirit. We're setting up the whole thing. Uh, we've got, we've got, you know, the promise we've, or we've got the prologue at the very beginning. Hey, Theophilus, here's what we're trying to do here. Um, we've got uh, Jesus and his ascension and giving us the outline of the whole book, Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Um, we've also got Jesus leaving and promising the spirit we've got then at the in what we just covered we've got the okay we're back up to 12 we are ready 
Israel has been reconstituted in the 12 around their King Jesus, who's risen, exalted, and ascended. And now these 12, as a new Israel, are ready to call all of Israel back to God. And we're we're just waiting for the spirit to light the flame, right? And and get the church started or get this kingdom of God movement started. And now we're going to yeah. start to see in the next section, we're going to start to see the beginning of what we call the church as uh, in these initial chapters, it's just Jews in these initial chapters. And so it's still a, it's a Jewish messianic movement. It's meeting in the temple, but it's a whole new way of living uh, together as Jews because the Messiah has come. And so they start going by, there's, it's like a different community. It's a different way of relating. It's a different way of understanding the law. And then pretty quickly here, they're like, minds are blown because Gentiles are coming to God through Jesus too. And they have to start thinking, whoa, whoa, how does this work? And so we get the church starting to gather together uh, over the course of the next couple chapters. So basically chapter two, all the way to chapter eight is the, I think that's about what we're doing is the next big chunk of uh, gathering the church, the the church beginning to gather together before uh, trial arises, um, trials and persecutions, and then the church gets scattered. And this is one of the best things about Acts is every time there's a conflict, whether it's from outside, like there's persecution from the outside or inside people disagreeing, um, the church always grows because of it. So persecution scatters believers and the church grows. Uh, Paul and Barnabas get in a disagreement. Well, now there's two mission trips going instead of one. And so the church always grows every time there's conflict. So uh, yeah, our next series, I just pulled up the schedule, is going to go from chapter two to the end of chapter seven uh, to the stoning of Stephen. And um, that'll take us through the end of September. And so uh, the next however many sermons that is, 13, 14, um, will be us seeing the church kind of gather together and form around this new corporate identity identity of people, uh, Jews who are following Jesus and suddenly realizing that, oh, Gentiles are part of this too. Mm -hmm. We're going to help people out by making the series. There's like a lot of unity in the way the, des the design of the series Mm -hmm. We're excited to um, reveal new stained glass windows each, um, yeah, yeah, each yeah. time. It's like that kind of like will help summarize the sub series that we're in, but then also be able to start to create this really beautiful picture mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. as we go along of creating a full stained glass wall or window. Yeah, right. And and because this is a long series, we're going to try to pretty regularly, almost every week, at, um, recap where we are, where we're going, so we can keep ourselves in the story, especially for folks who are going to be joining us along the way. It's like, hey, here's where we are. Here's what we've been doing. Here's what we're learning. We'll, we'll try to recap it pretty often. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Joey. Thanks for all your time today. Hey, no problem. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Cut for Time. If you wish to submit questions to our pastors following their sermon, you can email them to podcast at faithlivitout.org or text them into our Faith Church texting number, and we'll do our best to cover it in the week's episode. If this conversation blessed you in any way, we encourage you to share it with others. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week.